we just start and see what happens. Yeah, so first off, do you want to introduce yourself? Okay, so are we, are we recording now? Yeah. So we're going to... Well, should you introduce yourself and then introduce me? Uh, Alright, alright. Uh, okay, so welcome to my channel again for my second video. I'm Oscar Barr. Uh, today we're going to be talking about sin taxes or negative externality taxes, sometimes referred to as pigovian taxes. Don't know where that word's from, but but yeah. Um, and uh, joining me today is Noah Keat, who is a politics student at Warwick. Uh, so if you want to introduce yeah, yeah. yourself. Hello, hi everyone. Yeah, I'm Noah. Um, really what? delighted to be here and sort of we realise that Oscar and I often have these debates and disagreements um, off air and like Facebook Messenger or whatever. So we thought, why not talk about it um, in the full glare of YouTube and let's see sort of not who wins, but it'll be a mixture of sort of slight disagreement and there might actually be areas where we uh, agree a lot but um yeah hopefully it's be a really productive discussion yeah we tend to agree on on most issues at least at least on the the hypothetical we sometimes think we agree that we want the same thing but sometimes we think different ways of achieving it are better than others so i think that's probably what this discussion would be based around um so uh shall i kick off uh yeah far away so to me what what a sin tax is is a tax to disincentivize somebody or some organization from doing something that damages either themselves or other people or both um i think this is important because if you don't have things to disincentivize people from doing destructive behavior uh then they will continue to do destructive behavior and that damages everybody so yeah I'm glad you sort of outlined it there because the first thing I wanted to raise was um, we sort of need to be clear how we're defining a sin. You know, it's almost quite um, biblical and religious in the way that we <laughs> talk about it. And so there does need to be sort of some kind of clarity of what we're calling a sin before yeah. we discuss syntax. And in a sense, it is it can be sort of quite subjective in a way that idea of like having a negative outcome. Hmm. Um, and obviously, even if we can't define it, we know what it is, and we certainly know things that are already deemed. Um, syntax in society yeah. so for example um, like alcohol duty and I'm sure we'll come on to this more but um, extra pricing for alcohol mm -hmm. um, for cigarettes that people are paying an extra amount for precisely what they're buying on top of the usual price and VAT. Yeah so for that reason I'm pretty much only in support of syntaxes where they are very obviously research shows that it is damaging. I wouldn't be in support of a syntax on I don't know, sex outside marriage or, you know, something ridiculous like that where different people have very differing opinions and it's obviously not shown to be damaging. Um, yeah, so precisely. I... It's, it's almost so tricky because everyone will have their own sort of you know, moral <laughs> comfort. Yeah. And I think it is important to this. Um, I think when we're talking about sin, anyone that supports a kind of syntax surely doesn't want to be seen as sort of Puritan or pleasure-denying. So it has to be quite, a, as you say, fine line um, between where it's enforced and where it isn't hmm. i mean just to kick off a question i mean you said um you support syntax in some ways where it's someone damaging themselves so even if it's just damaged themselves as so that made me um, wonder what you think about the idea of something like a victimless crime because say someone is damaging themselves through um excessive consumption of a certain product yeah or, um sort of behaving in a bad way so first off it's only I... It's only affecting them. Is that is that truly wrong? I think we shouldn't have victimless crimes. I think if something does only damage themselves, they shouldn't be criminalised for it. But that's not to say that I don't think they should be disincentivised from it. The same way I think people should be allowed legally to be fat or smoke. Um, but I don't think that it's worthwhile to just put them in prison, right? 
it's not not effective and it doesn't help anybody and realistically they have done nothing to harm anybody so yeah and when you think we already have a prison population that is about eighty-five thousand, it's already very high yeah and i think the argument often made against sending people to prison that don't prove an obvious threat to other people is that by going into prison and being in that environment um it makes you far more likely to re-offend mm. and it also makes it far harder to access employment once you've left prison because naturally an employer will see on your criminal record if they need to have access to it you've been to prison um yeah, exactly. they will choose anyone else over you i certainly would so i get the point yeah we have to be careful about um the way we're sort of labeling sin and also not being seen as puritans although i'm sure some people that support syntaxes are actually puritans but um, i don't think either i don't put ourselves in that in that bracket no i don't mind forming a a coalition with them if it's if that's what it takes but i uh i don't want them pushing that those ideals as a reason for the taxes um, I think they will. Yeah, I, I think they probably would, though. They'd probably be a, a sort of sect outside marriage. Um, all the moralising <laughs> you get with them. So you'd have to sort of say, agree with you on those one or two things, but on the rest, we um, we depart. But yeah, sometimes forming um, coalitions with people you almost always disagree with is um, a, a necessary evil, mm-hmm. as the UK found with the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in the Second World War. Yeah, so uh, moving on. So what we were talking about on well this whole conversation basically started on twitter when we referred to meat taxes um uh so i think that a flat rate tax for meat is not fair because it it just increases the cost of food and it's not efficient because it doesn't incentivize farmers to produce meat any more ecologically or morally um i would much prefer to simply have an efficient and um what's the word proportional price for water and land and carbon so this would encourage farmers if they can produce the meat that people want to buy it would encourage them to um not produce it in a wasteful manner so they would not use too much land or water or carbon um and i think that's a better option and I understand that this would also raise the price of meat, but it would at least incentivize not just people to consume less meat, but also the farmers for what meat they do produce to produce it more ethically. Yeah, I mean, when talking about syntaxes, there are sort of two things I think about in my mind. It's like, do I support the idea of a syntax um, because I think the thing is wrong? Um, do I, like, am I for or against syntax because I think the thing is right or wrong? Or am I against it because I'm worried about where the burden of such a syntax would fall yeah. on those that already have the lowest incomes? And say, if it was only taxing um, the rich and the elite that already had very high incomes and could easily afford the extra payment, would I be so against it? Um, and it was this fascinating, yeah, the, I sort of posted this tweet about um, this Guardian article saying that should we give um, animals the same rights as humans? Um, short answer, no. Yeah. I'm very um, <laughs> much an anthro- anthropocentrist. I'm sort of humanity all the way. And actually, I think that I, I sort of think there needs to be a far wider public discussion, especially in the UK, um, which appears to be a nation full of animal lovers to quite some detrimental effect to humans in many circumstances uh, but that's a topic for an, another discussion yeah um yeah i thought it's interesting the point you raise on on the meat tax is almost like where is the tax directly applied is it applied to the produce the meat um but then even if it is applied there eventually it will trickle down to the so, consumer of meat. yeah i just want to point out here um it doesn't necessarily matter to the end consumer where, at what point in the chain the tax is pr- um, applied but it does matter in terms of tax receipt so if you apply a tax to for example carbon 
to people when they burn the carbon in their cars, um, which is more or less what we do now. We have a high rate for fuel. Um, it's not fair because it, it only applies it to car drivers who burn fuel, but it wouldn't apply it to someone who just like burned a barrel of oil in their garden. Not that people would do that, but um, it's a narrow base, basically. Um, and if you do that for for cars, it's it's not great because people can cheat it. You've got the emissions testing scandal that happened a few years ago. Um, it's much better in that case to tax it at the source where it's pumped because you can't pump oil without the government noticing, right? And you, they can easily monitor how much is coming out. Yeah. And, and of course, let's not forget, sorry, let's not forget for fuel duty, this is where my um, anti-car bias comes in. Um, fuel duty, though, I'm sure it's expensive. Many, it has been frozen. It has not increased for um, many years when so many other taxes have increased. And partially that's sort of purely an electoral perspective. Yeah. Um, your car coalition of voters is very high. Most people drive a car. Actually, yeah. They won't be happy if you increase it, whereas me, as I'm a sort of public transport um, enthusiast, will be very happy with that. But that's yeah. um, one of the reasons I'm not getting elected. I think most importantly there is that uh, not just that the cost of having a car has decreased proportionally, but also the cost of taking the bus or the train has increased hugely in the last 10 years um, and even more before then. So it's created this unfair dynamic there. Um, whereas if we did have a flat tax on all carbon, they wouldn't be able to do that kind of gerrymandering because there's there's no... Re Sorry, it's not really gerrymandering. Like unfair treatment if that makes sense, because if yes, you have the same yeah. tax for everybody, it like everybody eats it, and that would encourage the more efficient forms. Basically, the way I like to think of it is it takes out the low-hanging fruit. So Certainly. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, with such a tax, what it's trying to do basically is nudge people to, um, towards more environmentally friendly, towards more beneficial options. Yeah. Um, the thing I always want to investigate with that is how many of those options are currently available far and wide for most of the population, sort of regardless of what their income is. Um, so, for example, if there was, say, um, electric cars um, that were available far and wide at a reasonable cost, or if there was, say, um, genetically grown lab meat, which I think is something that's really exciting and a really sort of interesting innovation, um, and that was available at sort of a cheap and realistic price, and people um, were still not making the switch from, say, um, diesel and petrol cars or from um, natural meat, then I would have a bit more sympathy towards the idea of such taxes. But for me, while those um, opportunities and those more beneficial options remain sort of quite expensive, remain quite out of our reach, that's why I'm worried about it, because it's almost trying to nudge people towards making um, what may be a more beneficial yeah. choice, but ultimately a more expensive choice. And so hence, you're just going to have the poorest paying more. And so that's why I'm a bit resistant okay. to... So, so two points here. Firstly, even if there aren't currently good alternatives available, having a carbon tax would incentivize the development of such options. Um, if you just rely on people's morals, which like is granted quite effective, the amount of vegan food is increasing hugely, um, but it's slower than if you have also the incentive of you can undercut these meat producers by producing a more efficient like lab-grown meat, right? Because they you wouldn't have to pay as much carbon tax as they would. Um, so it doesn't just it's not just a nudge for the people; it's also a nudge for the companies that produce the products. And secondly, there are already alternatives to eating meat i don't eat meat but um and it's it's cheap and it wouldn't really hurt people it's just a change of habit and i think the increased yeah. cost would nudge people towards changing their habits 
and I guess the question is ultimately what the libertarian would say is well what role should the government have in policing people's um, eating habits and why there's often some opposition to this whole idea of um, nudging which you know it can occur in so many circumstances we saw a lot of government nudging during the pandemic whether it's trying to rightly incentivize people to get vaccinated mm. or incentivize people to stay at home and not visit their relatives um, that idea of fear and you know, natural fear of the virus, which was um, perfectly legitimate, especially for older people, that was a form of nudging people in the right direction. Mm. Um, but where there becomes opposition to it is where it becomes this idea that um, we as those in power, you know, the te technocrats in power, um, know how to live the good life. And we know what the good life is and that you and that you as the general public don't know. And so in order to um, incentivize you to do that, we're not going to try and sort of win a political argument or have a political um, sort of framework about it where it can be discussed that we're ultimately going to sort of indirectly indirectly coerce you into changing your lifestyle and I guess my concern is where it's seen as um, those who are in power who might you know have a um, vegan lifestyle or whatever um, trying to impose that among the many without any kind of democratic or political discussion on it. Yeah I mean I think that's definitely a concern there and uh, but I wouldn't say it's it's necessarily coercive in that if you have a situation where like we all or pretty much all agree that we can't keep pumping out carbon right um i'm just taking carbon as because it's kind of a like the easiest simplest one to to do here but if you have a situation where we all agree that we can't keep pumping out carbon and we want to reduce emissions um then the the fair rate of tax if you want even from a libertarian perspective i consider myself mostly libertarian on most issues um even from that perspective, it's still important that the people who produce the negative externalities pay their share of it, because if they don't, it just falls on everyone else. Just the same way as like, we pay taxes so that we have roads, right? It's not that... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. But then there's also the question that um, does the cost of the amount that a company pays, say on their, pay on their, say on their carbon tax, does the cost that they... Um, pay through a tax is that equal to the negative externality and the wider consequence mm. of their carbon tax is that actually equal and i guess given that we know for how sort of serious a threat climate change is and the multiple problems it could cause which are going to cost governments um you know hundreds of millions of pounds plenty more down the line if it's not dealt with um can a carbon tax in a way really go far enough or is it just trying to sort of yeah so is it more of a nudge than actually a practical policy response that deals with climate change in, in my view i think it's a fair rate to tax to tax negative externalities would be the cost at which it's equal for the government to take in those carbon um so we we do have carbon sequestering through tree planting or um even just big machines or whatever that kind of thing um so if if we tax carbon at the same rate that it costs for governments to put it back in the ground that would be fair that's not to say that we should do that overnight because that's quite a high rate it's expensive and it would put so many businesses under it would cause a recession um i think it'd be much better to move it gradually up until we get to that rate and also that rate will continually drop as we develop more um carbon sequestering technologies it's suspected that it's probably gonna drop um i've seen graphs of this the effect of a, a carbon tax and basically it's gonna cost the price of oil goes shoots way up but then the market adjusts and it comes down. It's, it doesn't come down to as much as with no tags, but it does come down to a reasonable amount. And then that's Definitely. if you that's if you implement a twenty five percent or fifty percent 
of the cost of returning it like overnight i'm suggesting more like a five to ten percent and just increase it by like five percent each year i mean this discussion does feel sort of somewhat topical especially about a carbon tax um in relation to the sort of current ed- energy crisis facing the whole world yeah and i know we're seeing a, you're always seeing like a version of the carbon tax i mean it's not the same but with um every individual especially in the uk seeing their household bills for utilities like gas and electricity um increasing and there's the whole argument in my mind about to what extent is that just due to a global energy crisis we've seen this before in the 1970s when you had an oil crisis um and to what extent might it be especially in the uk that we sort of haven't got that sense of um domestic energy and like that domestic consumption there so have we got you know we've shut down um coal-fired power stations uh, we're shutting down um you know um other other forms of um I, uh... non-renewable sources g- generating electricity and we're clearly um, relying more on other nations and so my whole question is um is is the sort of energy crisis um, caused by just a global shortage or could it actually be that the current green alternatives um, can't deliver our consumption needs uh i'm i think the the problem here is absolutely not that we've been closing coal power plants it's that we haven't been building green energy it's not that we because the issue with green energy and there are issues with green energy is that it's it's like it some years we don't get as much of it right and that has been an issue we've had an especially still year this year it hasn't been windy um but even if it weren't for that um we still only feed like not that much of our grid with green energy most times of the year uh so we still got a lot of way to go before that becomes a consistent problem really um yeah i think closing nuclear was a bad move i've you've actually converted me along on that uh, along with a few others i'm very pleased thank you yeah no nuclear is hugely overregulated and um is very important to have for when the wind doesn't blow so to speak yeah no i completely agree and i think um in a way that i'm I'm, if i'm very pro-nuclear i can understand why people feel some concern towards it Mm. um firstly because it's easier to conflate nuclear energy with the idea of nuclear weapons and of course the two are completely different one is about sort of purely trying to act as a deterrent and potentially killing hundreds of billions of people Mm. um, whereas nuclear energy is just about that idea of generation and when you see what happened in, say, Chernobyl and the really long-term effects of such disaster, They're I very, understand, particularly, yeah. particularly from that area, I can understand why you'd be concerned. And I'm sure, even though I'm, I like to say I'm very anti-NIMBY, if I was living in an area right where a nuclear power station was being built, I might have some sort of hesitations, even if I was supportive of the project. Mm. Uh, but my whole th- you know, thesis behind supporting nuclear power is it is sort of, to me at least, it does seem like the silver bullet and... Um, you had the government, I think, saying... That I, I wouldn't, no, I disagree there. It's well. not a silver bullet. It's uh, it's good. It helps. It's a great alternative to coal and gas, but it's not an alternative to wind and solar. These are also really important. Um, Surely it is an alternative, as you say, when it's not windy and also when it's not particularly sunny, which, let's face it, in the UK, I mean, yeah. today is an exception when we're recording, but it's not. But the idea of nuclear um, is that, you know, the fact that there is um, less carbon. Obviously, you've got the issues with, you know, uranium and the... Um, the um the cost of getting that you know out yeah the no it, nuclear um, as it is is more yeah. expensive than any other form of power outside of uh gas i think is more expensive than nuclear but uh yeah but yeah so my, it's, my, it's, my, in yeah. terms of like cost per megawatt we actually get more out of wind and hydro and solar 
we just need the nuclear as a backup for when the wind doesn't blow, basically. That's my yeah. opinion. And my, my sort of idea is that any money, if there was to be a carbon tax, I'm not saying you'd convince me, but if there was, I'd almost want money that was raised from that carbon tax to go back into the exchequer and be invested in R&D programmes, you know, research and development programmes that were about finding well, um, those ways in which we can, you know... No, 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 I think, I think the carbon tax... Way. The carbon tax by itself will encourage that, as I was saying previously, that if you as a company and you're in the energy sector, for example, if you're like BP or whatever, um, and now you've suddenly got this huge fat tax on all of your oil and gas and coal, um, you're going to be hugely incentivized to find alternatives. You don't need the government funding so much. It's, I think the, the carbon tax works both ways in that respect. I would prefer, as you were pointing about regressiveness of the tax and it is regressive. Poor people spend a higher proportion of their money on uh, fuel and, and stuff. Um, it's not so regressive. Poor people don't spend more money. So although it's a higher proportion of their income, poor people spend less money on gas and heating and all of that because they have smaller homes and they, uh, I don't know, they're just more efficient. Um, so because of that, you can redistribute the money equally to everyone through NHS or schooling or just a straight cash payment or even UC and that would more than cover the increased cost that poorer families would be feeling um, so I think that would be rather I, I would rather have like a carbon tax and a carbon dividend than to have it just go into R&D which I think would be happening anyway and is happening hugely in the free market at the moment. Well, but couldn't the free market show that we don't need the state to enforce a no tax no i disagree the, the reason the free market the climate change no okay, just me... okay sorry so if i just finish my point i mean there's this whole to me it's slightly alarmist narrative about you know the climate emergency the climate crisis the idea that in 12 years time it's basically um all going to be over which i think is a very sort of nihilistic and fatalistic narrative but given that narrative is so much in the public mainstream couldn't you say that's the incentive that companies will take if they really think the world is sort of going to be near to over in such a short period of time that will be what helps attract you don't need the state to enforce yeah. a carbon tax on them to do that so the, there's two reasons why companies at the moment are investing in green technology firstly is um a lot of it's what we call greenwashing uh which is basically like you do something small you you i don't know use paper bags rather than plastic bags or whatever and people are like wow so green and then they go and shop with you right uh, the second one is that they're expecting carbon regulations to come in the near future. So they're basically preparing for that. And this is the, the much larger factor that is making huge differences to how green companies are operating. They're making neutral by 2050, neutral by 2030 pledges, and that's actually making a difference. But if we don't implement the actual like regulations that they're scared of or preparing for, um, they're not going to carry on doing that. That's That's only because they're expecting it. The market is forward looking in that way. Yeah, and I think we have to be sort of careful about the way in which we have this discussion, because I know among some um, in the green movement, and I say the green movement is sort of so diverse and varied. And sort of yeah, I hate some of them. Same. <laughs> had enough of them. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, I love having a good debate with some. Um, but for some, they're very much proponents of the idea of degrowth, and they say, actually, oh. we need these changes. To new, let me put, they need these changes to new source of energy. And as part of that new source of energy, we need to learn to consume less, and we've been consuming too much. And the main issue I have with that narrative is firstly, there are 
you know, many people in the UK who can hardly consume less. And then when you go and look at other nations that have yet to develop, um, particularly really poor nations in the continent of Africa, um, those individuals, they want to sort of find those sources of energy and they can consume less if they mm. tried. And so that's why I get worried about some of the discussion in parts of the Green Movement, which seems to see um, transferring to new sort of sources of generating energy as a way of degrowth and consuming less and going back to our origins, which I don't think is at all reflective of what people in the world sort of need no. or want. Yeah, so I, I think there is a few aspects of degrowth that I kind of agree with. And that is the idea that we can have a higher quality of life um, by consuming less. And I think that's the case when you look at walkable cities and uh, not needing to drive everywhere. That is a lower consumption. You don't consume as much fuel. But at the same time, it means you can you commute less, you work less because you don't have to spend hours commuting and you generally have a higher quality of life. Um, so I think degrowth doesn't necessarily have to mean make everybody poorer. It can mean just don't consume things that we don't need to consume, like pointless stuff, right? It's, it's bad allocation of capital. I'd rather live close to my work and cycle somewhere than live far away and drive and then not have the money that I would have spared by cycling to, that I could then spend on like things I actually enjoy, right? Rather than just fuel. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting when you talk about um, walkable cities, because we see that in parts of London. I don't know loads about it, but there are these things called low traffic neighbourhoods. Mm. And so there are specific parts of um, London boroughs where, you know, uh, cars aren't allowed down that way. Um, you can only go sort of one way system. There are real limits on where cars can go. And that's actually caused a lot of, um, you know, some animosity among people that really rely on cars in terms of getting where they need to get. And while those who potentially live in a low traffic neighbourhood might be pleased. It's not something that's being um, greeted with sort of universal consensus and support. And actually, some people have talked about it from a, a safety perspective, the idea that if you're sort of trying to go out late and it's um, your road is completely empty because there are no cars around. No, that's completely that's wrong. Made, that sometimes made people feel more unsafe in terms of getting around and wanting to have sort of the presence of other people in cars with them. <laughs> okay, no, wait, can, wait, can you pause there? Sorry. It, yeah. A, a, car, a car is not like something that's going to help you if you're feeling unsafe because there's no cars nobody's going to get out of their car when they see someone haggling you but if there's people walking around like with you as there would be in a walkable city you feel more safe right you don't feel safe walking along a motorway do you <laughs> Yeah, no, I get what you mean. As I say, neither of us at London is, we've not had to experience this, but what yeah. I'm saying is that where there has been, I think it's been, the main issue has been the dis this disparity between which areas are allocated low traffic neighbourhoods and which aren't, mm. and there have been sort of, I think, independent standing almost as an anti-LTN yeah. candidate, so, so it's not sort of, there is disagreement. Again, that's why I'm generally more in favour of taxes than regulation, because taxes are far more broad-based, they impact everybody the same, and this way you don't end up with situations where like some people really heavily lose out and other people really benefit um, outside of yeah. people who are consuming far more than they ought to considering their wealth. Those are people who would lose. And there's a few of them like self-employed FedEx drivers or something, um, that kind of deal of, of situation. Um, they would really struggle under a, a carbon tax or an increased fuel duty. Um, but I also think that the market would regulate, that FedEx would up its prices and pay its drivers more to compensate. So I think it's it's yeah. quite self-regulated in that respect. I thought it could be um, maybe interesting to discuss some existing syntaxes that we already have, like we've talked about yeah. hypothetical carbon and meat. We've got ones currently in force, as I was mentioning earlier, like sugar, tobacco and alcohol. Mm. 
And just on the first one that I want to talk about, which was tobacco, it was a, I don't smoke, never have smoked, um, can't understand why anyone would, um, you don't look cool, you smell, and you're going to die of lung cancer, sorry, just, just don't do it. But anyway, yeah. um, but couldn't you not argue that it wasn't necessarily um, increasing the price of tobacco, it stopped people smoking cigarettes, automatically redu uh, reduced it, but a sort of public health awareness campaign, you know, adverts I think really it... showed the effect that it had. So it was perhaps less about pricing and more just about a public discussion. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely about both. In in cigarette market, it's it's not really like normal markets. So firstly, cigarette smokers, um, poor people spend more absolute money on cigarettes than rich people, um, which is really unlike nearly anything else we consume. Nearly always, rich people spend more absolute money, but less as a proportion of their income. Um, so firstly, there's that. Secondly. It's a weird market because everybody knows it kills you and they still smoke it. It's there there is no it like me. there is no cost benefit analysis. So in in this sense I don't think costs is actually very effective. It's just the only issue is information shortage and lack of other things for people to be doing with their time or other pe ways for people to de-stress. Um so I don't actually think pricing cigarettes highly is very good because it's hugely regressive and it's it's been shown that various other regulations like mac, mac minimum pack sizes and um and educational campaigns and making the wrappings be ugly all of that is actually quite effective um, and of course you saw it in like news agents or whatever that they have to place cigarettes behind sort of yeah exactly now. so that as if that would sort of turn people away and clearly i mean it might have some effect you have many people that will now um vape rather than sort of smoke cigarettes and as you said having to make the packages look um look really terrible so i, I almost think there can't be any more information that's given to people um and interestingly with smoking you had a, a law that came in in 2007 which was the smoking ban and so before that people were allowed to mm. smoke in public places like inside pubs and elsewhere and then this change in 2007 which i mean i can't really remember a time where you could do all that smoking but it was argued that change had a massive impact on public health just because it massively um reduced you know passive smoking yeah and it just meant people were restricting where they could smoke they had to go and stand outside and so that again may have nudged people towards um yeah. not smoking or choosing to smoke in different ways so, so basically my point yeah. here is that because smoking is such a poor market it, it's to have a, a properly free market you have to have everybody has good information or perfect information ideally um and that they have other options but here smoking you only get it from tobacco. We have recently had vaping and nicotine patches, which do help. And I think having tobacco taxed at a higher rate than vapes or nicotine patches would be beneficial in helping people switch because they'll see, oh, I can get my nicotine hit from this in a much cheaper way than from this, right? Um, so I think there is a place for taxes, although I'm not sure 20 years ago when there wasn't good alternatives that there was a place. I think the educational campaign was far better there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about low information. I mean, I actually think everyone who smokes is intelligent enough and knows. Usually, yeah. Them, but they just, I think they probably just see it as a form of a pleasure, as a form of de-stressing. They just don't yeah. have any other outlet in which to get their de-stressing. And if they smoked since they were 20 and they're still 60, they might think, well, why bother changing? And so, yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. But I think that um, there is some information that is lacking. And people don't realise just how much stopping smoking will actually help them most people make nearly a full recovery. Most people who die of lung cancer smoke up until the point they die. Um, it's actually really good to stop. And a lot of people think, well, I've already smoked for 10 years. I'm already at higher risk. It's not going to make a difference. But it do your lungs do 
recover quite hugely um yeah so there, there are definitely agree. tidbits of information that's lacking in the market um, definitely and another one i just wanted to mention um alcohol sort of duty now i know i don't think you drink oscar um i only drink for five days over christmas so we're sort of the exception to the rest of the country and i think there is a massive issue in the uk with our sort of drinking culture um i know so we don't go out clubbing or whatever mm. but people it seems they often drink and enjoy drinking to get drunk it isn't similar to other european countries where you say you might have an alcoholic beverage uh, as part of your meal so hence the meal waters down the alcohol um, quantity and so it's as though i'm sort of asking what effect we think um alcohol pricing and increasing alcohol pricing with alcohol duty has really had given that we as a nation have such a drinking culture which i i, I think is immensely unhealthy not to sound puritan but i do yeah so i mean we saw rishi sunak's in the in the budget uh this year last year um he simplified this the system and i would think it is much better much fairer but the fact that we still have different rates for different types of alcohol is kind of pointless like why would you lower the champagne tax but increase the wine tax or whatever it is like it's all the same drug right we don't have different rates for tobacco based on how much nicotine is in it or based on what flavor it is you know like that's basically flavored of alcohol um so yeah i think that's ridiculous i would much rather have a kind of a flat rate for all ethanol consumption um no matter what form it's in uh and I think, yeah, I think that alcohol is not so bad as a, as a way to tax to stop people doing it, because there are alternatives. You can go there and you can not drink. Um, or, uh, and also the fact that rich people do actually spend more money on alcohol than poor people. So if you had an alcohol tax, you could give the reap, reap the benefits to everybody equally and um, and poor people would net benefit. Definitely. I mean, I, I sort of think whatever a government does with alcohol, it's not going to change our attitude towards it. I mean, Somewhat, when yeah. we, we won't, it, it's we're mainly a cultural thing. Yeah, but I think lockdown. Yeah, I so. think quite like cigarettes, we could do more to regulate where people are allowed to consume alcohol. Because um, a lot of the time, you, I would like me, for example, I would be more, much more comfortable going out with colleagues if I went somewhere where people wouldn't be drinking huge amounts of alcohol, because it's uncomfortable to be around drunk people when you're not drunk. Um, I think similar to cigarettes, you don't want to be around smokers when you don't smoke, and that might encourage you to actually start smoking. Uh, so I yeah, think there, there I is a place agree. for regulation there as well. Yeah, it was fascinating in the whole lockdown narrative about what was allowed to reopen when. Um, oh, it was so ridiculous, was wasn't it? Pubs could reopen and it with so a good a meal or whatever. Freedom. Yes, with a substantial, substantial meal. Substantial meal. A scotch egg. It was sort of laughable when you look back on it, really. Um, and then just a sort of final existing tax I wanted to mention. Um, I remember about sort of five or six years ago, the government announced plans to introduce a sugar tax, which has now come into force. Mm. And so the ideal would be particularly on fizzy drinks that contain sort of large amounts of sugar, large, I think, grams of sugar per 100 millilitres or whatever. They would be taxed at slightly um, a slightly higher amount. I think what that did do was incentivize some companies to try and switch their product to make it less sugar content. Yeah. But and the only real place I actually notice it is when I go um, to Nando's, which I love. Um, the, if you buy a um, Coca Cola, that costs about sort of ten. 20p more than hmm. if you buy say a diet coke or a coke zero and so that's the only sort of because i don't like that's the only place i really have fizzy drinks i don't buy them from sort of news agents or elsewhere um but that's where i notice oh yes they are trying to nudge you away from hmm. consuming the sugar so yeah in the uk because we have the nhs it's actually 
in everybody's interest to keep everybody else healthy. If we're not, then we sp we cost money because we cost the NHS with diabetes and shorter lifespans, so we don't pay as much tax. You know, it is actually it is a negative externality to to be obese. Um, that sounds kind of cruel, but uh, but yeah. Uh, so I think there is a place for sugar tax, and like you said, it's very good at encouraging companies to actually just change their recipes if they can find a recipe that's lower sugar or um, or they just set the prices differently. Like, I don't really care whether I have Coke or Diet Coke. Um, and if I see the Coke is 10p cheaper, I'm going to choose the Diet Coke, right? Uh, I think that's yeah, precisely. quite an effective think, use again, of taxes. Yeah, I think, again, that's why a public conversation is needed. Uh, because so often with food, people think it's how much fat is in a product that will determine how fat you become, basically, when actually so much of it is about sugar. And that's the real sort of ignored, I think, health issue. Yeah. Uh, the impact of sugar consumption and focusing too much when we buy a product or an item and you, know, I you think, look at how many calories it has, focusing too much on the fat and not enough the sugar. I think on, on that, I think that sugar is a good thing to tax because it's very replaceable by artificial sweeteners. Fat, on the other hand, is really not as replaceable. And some fats are important for us. We, we couldn't live without some fats. Um, so I think it's, it's much harder to, to tax uh, fat than it is to tax sugar. Though I do also understand that as far as losing weight goes, which is the main aim of the sugar tax, I believe, although also your teeth, I guess, would benefit from it, um, it's basically calories in minus calories out. So if people were noticing that the sugary thing is more expensive because of the sugar tax, but the fatty thing is less expensive because there's no fat tax, um, I think that's quite like worrying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like that um, because it, realistically yeah. it's the same calories, right? It's unfair on fatty food producers. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating when you made the point about um, the NHS and the idea that sort of it's um, not individual health insurance mm. that we have, say, in like America or, you know, other European nations as well. I often just like discussion where it's only the NHS or the American system. There are plenty in between. And what you say, because of the nature of our health service and the fact everyone is paying for the health care of everyone, we do have that incentive to keep sort of keep well. Mm. Um, and that's why I dislike some of the narrative about um, not treating, you know, unvaccinated patients against COVID, even though I think they definitely should get vaccinated and they're sort of foolish not to. Um, we still sort of treat people, even if they've made negative health choice or health choice we would disagree with. Yeah. And I think that's sort of that universal idea is like worth maintaining. In, in that respect, sort of find it irritating. I think it's far better to tax them as, as they're doing the negative health choices than after the fact and you hit them with a large bill. Because that, that way you just, like if I smoke and I get lucky and I don't get lung cancer, then I've, you know, I've just got lucky. Um, whereas if I smoke a little bit and I do get lung cancer and then they've hit me with a fat hospital bill um, because you, you, I was a smoker and I got lung cancer, that wouldn't be fair. It's much more fair to taxi out the source, really. Because um, yeah, then you don't just have people getting lucky or unlucky. Certainly true. Um, I also wonder what we're talking about, you know, trying to reduce meat consumption um, or whatever, but then actually, and partially because it's about certainly eating lots of red meat that can lead to various health issues it's also the worst um, for the environment yeah and also but also sort of for personal health um can there be given that there are sort of potential health issues caused by not eating meat you know like sure should be mm. 12 vitamins or whatever um you know it's not like we're arguing let's tax um consumption of um like non-consumption of meat which could cause the health which could you know cost the health service money again in the future all i'm saying is that um in a way it's not a zero-sum game you know even by trying to um 
massively encourage reduction of meat um, that could still cause some issues in the long run yeah i think some some better screening from the nhs would help i only found out i had vitamin d deficiency in the past months because i had a blood test for something else but it would be definitely useful for anybody to more easily get a blood test for all their vitamins and stuff um, and then once they have that information, they can make a more informed decision about whether they really need the red meat or not, or whether they should cut down on fatty foods or whatever it is. So, yeah. Definitely. And then um, talking about sort of, yeah, environment, environmentalism, um, very important. I mean, we've sort of discussed it quite a lot, I think, through a UK context. And so I know it's impossible to say how would this apply internationally, given that there are 200, you know, territories in the world. Yeah. Wait, so- um, but for other nations where, which have got even, say, particularly as I'm thinking about developing countries that have got even fewer um, options for um, non-carbon source of energy or the innovation currently for it to take place or that haven't got, say, lab-grown meat that can be consumed. I mean, we're not sort of talking about universally imposing a carbon tax and meat tax, are we? This has sort of been very much a domestic discussion. Um, oh, you say? Oh, yeah, no, I, I actually, I think it... it. So if you have a domestic carbon tax that doesn't impact uh, foreign goods, all that's going to happen is we'll export our carbon. And we have been doing that, pardon me, because we've been uh, deindustrializing, and the UK's industry is more tightly regulated than other industries. So we've been exporting all the dirty things to other countries. And, and I think because carbon is a global issue, um, it is really important that we don't just incentivize moving it from one place to the other. You see a similar thing with corporate tax rates where company or countries that charge higher corporate tax rates, the companies just move out. They, they put their headquarters somewhere else, right? Um, a much yeah. better system is either you have a global minimum, which is what they're trying to do with corporate tax rates. Um, you could have a global minimum carbon tax. I think they were discussing that at COP, the recent COP. Um, or I think more easily, you can just have a border adjusted carbon tax. So... If you are importing steel from China or whatever, um, they take the average uh, carbon footprint of the steel and they lock that as an increase to the duty um, for the steel. And that would mean that you wouldn't give foreign companies an unfair advantage in the in carbon intensive markets. Um, so I think that would yeah. be much more fair. And I think you're right about that it would hurt countries that are, that are struggling to, to decarbonify. Um, but just yeah. the same as I think it's still important that they're incentivized to decarbonify, just the same as I think poor people should be incentivized to cycle rather than drive. Um, I think some more foreign aid would be helpful, some research and, and maybe loosening the patent laws a bit so foreign companies can in, invest in green tech that's currently protected by American IP. Um, I think that would really help. Uh, so I think a, a bit more globalism and a bit less uh, national localism would, would be beneficial yeah, we can we can definitely sort of agree on more international development i still think it was so shameful that department was both shut down and the percentage of gdp allocated to it by the government was reduced from 0.7 percent 0.5 percent and the government's whole argument that oh well there's been a pandemic seems to forget that the whole point of doing it the whole point of tying its gdp was that it reduces anyway during the time of a sort of national crisis that's why it's not just 0.7 percent of anything it's linked to yep. um gdp anyway it's very silly um you know interesting points um definitely made there i think it's um i think a lot of discussion has been about yeah trying to find those choices and um, incentivizing how you incentivize your best move towards something that is more um 
environmentally better without sort of, mm. I'm always at the point about who's who it falls on the back of and trying to um, minimise that as much as possible, especially for people that are um, really struggling. How do you think, um, we sort of talked about this in a very sort of exciting, you know, abstract way, how do you think you could make it work as an electoral strategy, you know, if you were trying to lobby a yeah. political party to implement it, how do you think you could sort of... If I was, if I was politicsing, if I was politicsing the, the yes. carbon tax argument, I think I would say, uh, so firstly, we should implement a carbon tax for all carbon because it's fair. Um, those who produce the most should be paying the most. And I would tax carbon at source. So I could, I mean, to be honest, I could even just lie and say, oh, it won't be passed on consumers. Big oil will foot the bill because I'll, I'll tax the big oil. And that is what I would be doing. I would be taxing the oil and the gas and the coal that comes out of the ground. Um, of course, that's not true. They won't foot the bill they'll pass on the cost to consumers. Um, but I would also implement the carbon dividend. I would say um, all this revenue that we raise from carbon tax will go back to every single person equally um, and you get some money. So if you are poorer and you consume less, you're going to get a little extra money in your pocket af after the increased cost that you'll face. Um, and then also I might even push the rather nationalist point that British businesses are much cleaner than businesses abroad so we should make them pay their fair share through a, a border adjusted carbon tax um so oh, that's interesting there's Very a few a few angles you could no not yeah. at all i'm a total globalist but uh yes that's why i was surprised <laughs> but no yeah. there's definitely a few angles you could push this through depending on who you're trying to pander to basically yeah and it's interesting where you mentioned sort of cop and other sort of um global you know organized institutions where public discussions happen and i think that is sort of so important mm. things like the un I mean, my question was all of those is um, which nations' voices are being heard the most, and it's like how you make sure um, nations are being represented, because especially as say a, a global minimum um, carbon tax was yeah that was I, what was decided. That's like, what I don't who, I don't think like, that's who bad. Shapes that? Yeah, who decides? I don't it? think that's good because it's basically a veto. Like any company, a country can veto it in COP, right? Um, it's much better to have border adjustments because the leverage that big markets like the US and the EU have over poorer countries is not really so much political because they have like they've got votes to win back home you know they can't be seen as as that but their markets is what they have americans and europeans consume so much from from china and india and southeast asia and africa um that that's where we have the leverage that's where we can push the border adjusted carbon tax and it's but it's like unilateral they can't do anything about it they just have to pay yeah. the tax or get greener so yeah but again i again the whole point i think about it is just get greener it sort of sounds easy again that, that should be in terms no, of helping not, out with foreign aid it's not easy but, it, with environment. Yeah. but no, it's not easy it is important again, though. i worry about it especially for especially for um, nations that haven't even been able to properly industrialize in unsustainable ways like they haven't even been able to properly um have their own industrial revolutions and i think we have to there's there was a whole narrative underlay about this idea of a green industrial revolution mm -hmm. i think what however much we want to be um you know environmentally friendly we also shouldn't be trying to stop um countries that want to you know improve their economies move from more um agriculture based um agriculture sector of production to yeah manufacturing. I, I think and there there is a real place in that green way it has to be done in a balanced all i'm saying is it needs to be balanced yeah no to be honest i think there is a real place in labor's argument there for the green industrial revolution especially in east anglia where we live there's a huge sector for for biotech and agritech um which can be really globally exported there could be a really big market if we do push these kind of reforms 
Um, like if farming is not incentivized to be green, there's very little that we can do to improve it at the moment. Whereas if it's Definitely. suddenly has to think about its carbon, um, then you know the big, the great minds of East Anglia and the rest of the UK can get on the job. You know, we can export that that talent. Um, so I think it's not entirely just politics that they're saying about the green revolution. You know. Yeah, and the thing is, when you think of any tax, um, it's always seen in a very sort of negative connotation. Mm. You know, the um, chancellor saying your taxes are going up, it's viewed very negatively, and it becomes such a deciding factor, particularly at um, elections. You know, for all the cultural war arguments, um, economics is still valuable. Those who say economics are no indicator of voting, I think, are completely, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so, given what we've, we've talked about, you know, sin taxes, carbon tax, meat tax, again, do you think that can be, um, framed opposition in a positive you know narrative for voters because I, I know yeah. if i was a voter and i see a tax i want to have them as low as possible you know what i mean i want to keep as much of my money as i can no that's what i'm saying about carbon tax i think there is like a real argument that it will benefit people if you tax the, the polluters and give the money back to everybody equally most people benefit from that financially and on top of that most people will like be living a green life and, and that's good and we'll be um encouraging people who want to sell stuff to the uk to be greener through the border adjustment like the some taxes absolutely have positive effects on the economy they're not all just dead weight loss you know yeah so oh well, very exciting discussion yeah uh, fine i know we agree on things like um ubi universal basic income but if people listening or watching um they might think well why should um, everyone get the same amount isn't it more progressive to give those that are on lower incomes already a higher amount yeah. of dividends you get so i know you're a big supporter of the idea of universal income so just sort of expand that yeah so the, the first point there is that um benefits that everybody gets or at least a large proportion of people get are far more popular electorally they're they're resistant to political change you see this with the nhs in the uk it's a universal thing and we fight like hell to defend it and i think the same would probably be possible preferable with the UBI. Um, and secondly, it the, when you give conditional benefits, usually depending on income, possibly something else, uh, what happens is that you end up with a, when you take the benefits back, a much higher marginal tax rate. Um, I think it's something like 73% in the UK. So if somebody's coming off benefits, 63% gets taxed away. Uh, I think it's 63, I don't know. But it's a lot gets taken back and that disincentivizes work. So having non-universal benefits is a disincentive to work and um, and basically rather regressive in the fact that the marginal tax rate the low people, low income earners face is higher than that of high income earners, which is not fair. Yeah, I thought it was interesting where you mentioned the NHS and how he um, strives to defend it. I it's like a, sometimes can be a bit, it can be a bit too much of a I think it's a bit ridiculous. It's almost like a religion. Yeah, but like, well, actually, interestingly, um, Nigel Lawson, who was a he was a chancellor under Margaret Thatcher back in like the eighties before we were around, he said like the closest thing the English people have to a religion is the NHS, yeah. and in a way, he was right because it does seem like the um, institution that you dare not mention its name in a negative light, or you're seen as some exactly. American, you know, wanting to privatise it when that so often isn't the case. And I also um, found the point you made about universal benefits being more popular from an electoral perspective really interesting. I um, mean, you used to have child. Um, benefit that was universal. I think it now. should I think be. For the first yeah. One or it was like first one or two children. I can't remember them, but it used to be universally received by um, all parents. Then it was. Um, then it did become mean. Oh, there's some really, on really interesting research on that. Giving parents money just straight up for nothing. Don't take it away from them. 
increases the brain development of their children significantly. Like, it's a, a, a significant difference that it literally just helps children. And also, in the UK, we don't have too many babies. The birth rate is low. It's like 1.6 or something. Um, so I think we're not really, you know, like, we want to incentivize people to have babies if they are able to, if they want to. Um, so I think having universal child benefits is very fair as well. The same yeah, way I think... Yeah, when you do think about it, it is like raising the next generation. I mean, I was... Yeah, once, it's um, an investment, really. Yeah, I was once having this fascinating conversation um, with someone, and I don't really know what I think about it, but he was saying that... Um, parents should get more votes because it would be I think that. on their behalf I think and that. also voting on behalf of the generation he said because it's families and because it's the next generation uh, and then I made the whole argument about well what about those who want to have children but are unable or two and I also think um, I also don't think they should get extra votes because they should be thinking about their children when they're going to vote already you know they shouldn't be voting for their child but it was interesting no but it gives more weight to their I'd... votes doesn't it it's not just that but... it's not just that they um like, if I'm a parent and I vote for Labour because I think they'll do better for my kids, um, that's still only one vote. Whereas if I have, like, three kids, I, I ought to have more weight on my vote, no? I've got that much more... No. Okay. I've, just, I've got just as much a stake in the country as someone who uh, doesn't have children and doesn't want children. Thank you very much. I think, I mean, I know, I understand why... He was, I think he was maybe talking about it from a Conservative perspective, you know, being very pro family or whatever and I, I could be convinced but I do think um, it is discriminatory against um, those that either can't have children or but as it, but as it is what incentive does the but as it is what incentive does the government have to to help young people like we've been well, repeatedly because, shat on by every government in the past 30 years but you that's know? the fault of young people for not voting you know and it, it depends what age group of young people we're talking about so we're talking about children it should be a parental responsibility to think about what your children will go into when they vote and if you're above 18 you can vote then it's your responsibility to vote if if young people vote in as large a number as pensioners did there would be but there's reasons parents. why they don't it's not just that they're lazy or stupid it's because they work I'm and we have elections on a thursday really. night you know well, it's not like weekend elections like in france and elsewhere we should I, have i don't yeah. see why we shouldn't that's not going to affect the electoral system or make it unfair and i mean i think it's no it'll make it more fair polling off so yeah exactly so i'd happily have weekend voting i think we should have uh, voting all week seven days of voting well, be they ha they, that was one of the um, points of the 2020 election during the pandemic was that they increased the number of days yeah. um, early that you could vote before the election so that it was more spread out. No, we should absolutely pandemic. have seven days because um, yeah. people work different days and those are, are marginalised groups that work at the weekends or work late shifts or, you know, struggle to get there in the right time. I think yes. seven I mean, days the, for 24 course, hours a yeah. day would be the only fair way of actually doing it, if you actually care about well, democracy. Yes, of course you would need to find the staff willing to work overnight. I mean, I would have to work overnight as a political, but not everyone would. And then it would also be You about, can pay them. Um, it wouldn't be that much. Yeah. It's only once oh, yeah. every four years, you know? Yeah, and also, um, of course, it would be as, as just as you have to maintain the security of the ballot box for the 16 hours that a polling station is open <laughs> during a day, maintaining that for 168 yeah. hours. It would it would week. cost something, yeah. but I think yeah, it's easily it would a cost be worth paying. Restrictions, really. Yeah, and no, I get the point, but then it would be fascinating how um, that shaped a campaign. You know what I mean? If you yeah. already have people voting, although of course we do have that with postal voting. You know, I've had, I've had a postal vote many times, and you get that one to two weeks before the election. 
which by the way I support keeping there are lots of talks about sort of getting rid of postal voting I think that's a sort of very bad idea yes there might be some fraud but I think it's a good thing um I don't know how we got onto that tangent yeah that's yeah, a bit of a tangent we should have right. another discussion so should parents get more votes I'm gonna have to think about other people like should um those in the armed forces get more votes because they're defending you know the country and the value of what they do is so much you know what I mean we could have a proper debate no it's not that. about I don't, it's not about value, it's just that children, should, by the way. children are people, and they should be represented. But Well, but I don't think they should be through the ballot box, because they're <laughs> not adults. You know what I mean? It's like I don't support giving prisoners the vote. You Do know? you not? I, uh, no, I don't, they don't have it currently. I think part of losing your right to liberty is losing the right to vote. Oh my god, I'm a, I'm a total yeah. liberal compared to you, man. <laughs> well, yeah, or something. Anyway, so let's not get onto drugs policy. I think that's, that's probably enough for today. So, uh, thanks yeah, for joining. Thank you. And, uh, thank you for having me. It's been an honour. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I'll try and upload this to YouTube when I can. Um, so, bye everyone. Did that, did that all record? Oh, sorry.